As I said, we are going through this series where we're looking at various issues that can be difficult to think through, that can be hard to know. How are we supposed to think? How are we supposed to feel? All sorts of different issues where we feel that. And we oftentimes are living in a tension where we don't want to hide our beliefs. We want to be bold. We, we don't want to be cowards. We want to be able to say, here's what I believe. Here's, here's how my faith informs things. At the same time, we don't want to be seen as crazy. We don't want to be disliked. We don't want to disrupt relationships. We kind of walk in between both of those things often. And what we need to do, if you are a Christian, if you're not a Christian, we're grateful that you're here and hope that you can get an understanding of how God speaks into certain things. But if you're a Christian, what we want to do is bring every area of life to God and say, how do you speak into this? Not just what's the popular opinion, not just what does the right side of history say, not just kind of what, what do my friends say, what does my company policy say, but we want to bring everything before God and say, how do you speak into this? That is what we are called to do with all the different areas in our life. And in this series, I, I, I want to always just kind of preface it by saying a lot of times what we do as a church is go through books of the Bible. Uh, going through this series, because of the nature of what it is, I feel like it's kind of, I don't know, maybe 75% sermon and 25% lecture or educational because there's certain issues that we just have to say, what, how do we, what's just even the understanding of this? What are we even talking about? And I want to be able to provide both of those to you so you can just know here's what the issues are that we're speaking into, here's terms and definitions, and, and then how do we come to God's Word to understand those things. So if it feels a little bit like school, it's supposed to be, and sorry, if you're like, no, it's my weekend, it's supposed to be a little bit like school, and then also really coming to God's Word to see what He says. And today, here's what our topic is. We're talking about justice, and we live in a broken world. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. No matter what field you're in, whether you're in law enforcement or education or business or Wherever you are, you, you see there is injustice in the world. There is brokenness in the world. There's abuse. There's sex trafficking. There's racism. There's abortion, which, go back to week one, is a justice issue. There's poverty. There's corruption. There's all sorts of stuff that we look around and say, this is a broken world. And there's lots of talk about that, kind of different times, Things will spike, different events will happen, but there's lots of talk around the brokenness or injustice of the world. There's lots of talk about justice. Sometimes it's just around lawsuits. You see certain headlines that will say things like, someone is getting justice for this thing that happened to them. So and such and such company had to pay out this many millions and justice was served. You'll hear about things like indictments and the justice system. You'll hear, depending on kind of what's happening, during the, in the world, in the news cycle, you'll hear about, uh, you know, in the last three years, Black Lives Matter and protests around that. Sometimes Christians have heard things about critical race theory or CRT and don't know exactly what that means, or, but we know you're not supposed to like it. Uh, you might, in your job, have a lot of equity training. We hear things about immigration and refugees, and sometimes in Christian circles, you hear about social justice warriors and how that's bad. Or, there's a lot of just different conversation around justice. It is a 
cultural topic. It's often a topic that is at least mentioned within Christian circles. There's a lot of talk about it. So how are we supposed to think about this? How are we supposed to feel? How are we supposed to live? How do we bring this to God and say, God, what, what do you speak? We want to know what you say. We want to know how you lead us and guide our hearts and our lives and our minds. And if you're not a Christian, as I said, you may wonder, what does the Bible speak to these things? If you're exploring Christianity, you may even, I was speaking to somebody yesterday that said, uh, or two days ago, that said one of the things that they struggled with, why they left the church, is because of the way they felt that the church handled various cultural things and felt that there wasn't love and there wasn't pursuit of justice. So maybe if you're exploring Christianity, that might be part of what's in your heart. What does God's word say? In all of these things, I just have to, again, my last caveat, but in all of these things, all of these could be a a weekend seminar, right? All of these could be a whole class that you could take. I, I can't provide you everything that needs to be said and that could be said and should be said, but what I want to be able to do is at least give you a core framework for understanding what the Bible says. Let's begin with this. How does the world think of justice? How does the world think of justice? What are the world's theories around justice? And I I have to say, this is just my footnote at the beginning of the sermon, that much of this sermon is indebted to many people, many places I've learned, but I I do have to say that a lot of this I've learned from uh, the, the late Reverend Tim Keller. So I have to give credit where credit is due, and some of this I will quote him at length, but here is a graph that helps us think about the various theories of the world's justice. And you've got kind of theories that more range to individualism and then theories that range more towards collectivism. And it mentions philosophers. I won't go into all of that, but I I will, these uh, subheadings that say, you are wholly the product of your individual choices or you are wholly the product of social forces and structures. That's kind of the range, right? And there's a spectrum that things fall in between there. More the libertarian stream of justice. Justice is basically about freedom, which there's a lot, again, that could be said about all these, but what's going to be in there is essentially keep the government out of things. Keep the state out of things. Let's just be free. That's what a just society is going to be, where people have the the ability to just make their own choices and the government's not really involved. More a liberal view of justice is basically about fairness. There's going to be a lot to do with human rights and what is good for me and equal opportunity to pursue each person being, having equal opportunity to pursue the things that they want to pursue. More a utilitarian view of justice is basically going to be about happiness. Now, in some ways, this is not a very popular view. In another way... A lot of times you'll see things in the media where you hear things like uh, polls say the majority of Americans now believe this is okay, or the majority of Americans now believe this is an acceptable practice or view. Really, that's tapping into a utilitarian view of justice because it's saying, what will make the most people happy? Therefore, that's what is good. Also, if you've ever heard someone say, or if you've ever said this, what's it matter? It doesn't hurt anybody. That's really saying, so therefore, what is right is anything that just makes the most amount of people happy, and as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, that is what justice is. So those are kind of three popular views of justice, three different streams of justice. Obviously, that's simplistic. I don't know if anyone in here is like, I have a PhD in justice, and you, 
you just butchered that. Well, okay. Like I said, most of this is credited to Tim Keller, so, you know, take it up with him in heaven. <clears throat> That's why it's good to quote dead people. Uh, and then uh, the postmodern view of justice, justice is basically about power. Now, this is kind of one of the newest streams of thought around justice, and yet at the same time is one of the streams that has kind of taken over, not in, in full, but has kind of taken over in a lot of the popular discourse, in a lot of the popular thinking. If you're in education, if you're in law, a lot of this is kind of what is mainly being talked about currently. That's the one that I want to spend the most time explaining because it is really what has gotten the most influential. And this is where, if you've heard the terms critical theory, critical race theory, if you've heard those terms, CRT or CT, that really is where this is from. And what I want to do is just give you, because I think he will explain it, summarize it best, from Tim Keller, what the core tenets of more the postmodern view of justice is. Here's what he says. There's, I think, six core tenets. This will be at length follow along. First, the explanation of all equal, unequal outcomes in wealth, well-being, and power is never due to individual actions or to differences in cultures or to differences in human abilities, but only and strictly due to unjust social structures and systems. That's how you, that's the explanation of where did we get inequality, where do we get uh, in unequal outcomes in wealth. It's all due to unjust social structures and systems. The only way to fix unequal outcomes for the downtrodden is through social policy, never by asking anyone to change their behavior or culture. Again, that would be more on the individualistic side of things. This is on the further end of the communal side of things, saying it's all social structures, so therefore all social policies that need to be in place. Second, all art, religion, philosophy, morality, law, media, politics, education, forms of the family are determined not by reason or truth, but by social forces as well. So all of these things have kind of come from social forces, not just individual reason or truth. It hasn't been reasoned out. It's just been kind of social forces that have created all of these things. Why do we have the family that we have? Why do we have the politics? It's all because of society that has formed those things. Everything is determined by your class consciousness and social location. Religious doctrine, together with all politics and law, are always, at bottom, a way for people to get or maintain social status, wealth, and therefore power over others. So all of these things are really about power, and that is really how they are birthed. Just as we go along through these, see if you don't notice kind of maybe more of an educational uh, view of these things, or even just the way that these are displayed in pop culture and media and in various discourse and conversation that you may have. Third, therefore, reality is at bottom nothing but power. To see reality, if you want to really understand why things are the way they are, power must be mapped through the means of intersectionality. Most importantly, each category toward the powerless end of the spectrum has a greater moral authority and a greater ability to see the way, to see the way truly things are. So because everything is at bottom, it's all about power. Everything is about power then if you really want to understand reality, you can't do that unless you understand who are the people that are oppressed and who are the people that are the oppressors. You can't really understand things if you don't get that. And the more that you are towards the powerlessness end of the spectrum, the more oppressed you are, 
the more moral authority that you have because you're able to see things more clearly than those that are more the oppressors, okay? So here is, uh, this is from a, a textbook from Diversity and Social Justice, and this shows you the matrix of oppression. So I, I won't be able to go through every single one of these, but it, it shows you the identity categories, race, sex, gender, sexual orientation, class, religion, age, etc. Targeted social groups, privileged social groups. So these are the people in power, these are the people oppressed. Therefore, these are the people that can see truth more clearly. These are the people that have more moral authority. So if you are a white biological man who is gender-conforming, heterosexual, rich, uh, able-bodied, not disabled in any way, you go to true life and you're an adult, you are the worst that it gets as oppressor, okay? Congratulations. <laughs> if you're over here, I won't, you know, go through all those, then you are, you've experienced the most oppression and therefore you can see things most clearly and have more moral authority that brings into conversations, okay? So, won't go through all that. If you want to see that later, you're welcome to Google intersectionality and you'll see something like this that helps you. And where you kind of map out, like, I'm here, but I'm here, that's what the intersection means of intersectionality. So, the further you are, uh, there's different kind of points that you're able to get, basically, okay? Only powerlessness and oppression brings moral high ground and true knowledge. Therefore, those with more privilege, privilege must not enter into any debate. They have no right or ability to advise the oppressed, blinded as they are by their social location. They simply must give up their power. If you are an oppressor, you really don't know what you're talking about, and you really can't speak into any conversation, you need to acquiesce. Fourth, the main way power is exercised is through language, through dominant discourses. So the way, when you think about power, it doesn't mean that power is exercised by actual physical force, but the way that, it could be, but the way that power is mainly exercised is through language. It's through the narrative. It's through the conversation. It's through, it's through actual words that are used. A dominant discourse is any truth claim, whether grounded in supposed reason and science or in religion and morality. Language does not merely describe reality, it constructs or creates it. Reasoned debate and freedom of speech, therefore, is out. It only gives unjust discourses airtime. The only way to reconstruct reality in a just way is to subvert dominant discourses, and this requires control of speech. Some of you maybe have noticed this. When it used to be, I don't know, a couple decades ago, that Free speech was an idea thought to be, yeah, we can all agree on that, right? But today, not really. When various speakers go to college campuses, they're shouted out, they're protest protested against because it's not, what is thought is that even your speech is, is oppressing people. And so freedom of speech is more of a liberal value on the spectrum. It's not in the postmodern value system because you are oppressing through your language, okay? Finally, neither individual rights nor individual identity are primary. Again, that's more a classic liberalism view. Neither individual rights nor individual identity are primary. Traditional liberal emphasis on individual human rights, private property, free speech, is an obstacle to the radical changes that society will need to undergo in order to share wealth and power. And it is an illusion to think that as an individual, you can carve out an identity in any way different or, inter or independent of others in your race, ethnicity, gender, 
and so on. You are who your group is. You are not an individual. You are who your group is, for better or worse. Group identity and rights are the only real ones. Guilt is not assigned on the basis of individual actions, but on the basis of group membership and social slash racial status. This is really the prime view of justice currently operating in society, especially at the higher levels, and it trickles down. Now, are there still liberal views? Are there still utilitarian views? Are there still libertarian views? Yes, but kind of at the higher views of society that trickles down into your workplaces, into your trainings that you received, into education, and really in the media, I think the intersectionality graph is really helpful if you watch um, a lot of shows on Apple TV or Netflix. If you want to know who the bad guy is, really just look at that chart, and if you want to get rid of any suspense, it's going to be somebody on that side, almost to a T. You could go, what, what, would this show make it if you reversed it? And go, no, people would think it was crazy, right? So it helps to understand, okay, this is a view of justice that is prevalent in our society. Now, what are the foundations of biblical justice? There's a lot of talk about justice. What are the foundations of biblical justice? How does the Bible help us? And this is really important for a lot of reasons, but one reason is this. It's easy when things happen in the media, when you go to a training, when you hear a conversation, it's easy to in a moment, because of the things you hear, kind of get fired up about something like, oh man, yeah, but there's no grounding. There's no basis. It's just kind of in a moment feeling something emotionally and responding, but we don't, do you have as a Christian a view of justice? And if you don't, if it's not informed by the Bible, it means you might get fired up in a moment about something that's a left issue, a right issue, or whatever, but you haven't actually grounded your beliefs in what the Bible gives to us. And it's also important because at times, within Christian circles, because there's certain things that are talked about as justice that people go, I don't, I don't feel like that's right, or I don't feel like that's good, there's been a reaction to say, all social justice conversation is bad. Social justice warrior is used as kind of a description to, I guess you could say, marginalize people or separate them. They're not a clear thinker, a good thinker. Is that true? What does the Bible say? It's also important to have a biblical understanding of justice because, as we'll see, justice is important. And it's easy for Christians to be content with knowing a lot of things and yet not doing anything. To think that the whole of the Christian existence is to know more things, but not to actually do things. So all of this, we need God's help. And we need to say, what are the foundations for the Bible's view of justice? I think I've got six things for you. First, simply and yet most importantly, God is just. That's where our foundation of justice begins. God is a God of justice. God is a judge. God is a just God. All sorts of ways that you could say that. All sorts of scriptures that I could bring you. I'm always faced when I'm preparing most sermons, but especially kind of topical sermons like this, paring down. Oh, I want to show them that one. I want to show them that one. I want to show them that one. But then I would have like 30 scripture verses for one point, and you wouldn't probably be very happy. So there's a lot that I could show you. This is a sampling, just 40 texts. The first one says, this. Therefore, the Lord is waiting to show you mercy and is rising up to show you compassion. For the Lord is a just God. All who wait patiently for him are happy. 
The Lord is a just God. We need to understand that, get that in our heads. We have a God. We, we know as Christians, God's a God of love, God's faithful, God's merciful. God is a God of justice. It says this in Psalm 89, righteousness and justice. By the way, these two words often throughout the Bible go together. Oftentimes they are paired together. They're very closely related. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Faithful love and truth go before you. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. All the way that God rules as king. What's his political platform? What is, what is he running on as, as his uh, seat? What, it, what, is, what describes him as king? Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. And because of that, faithful love and truth go before you. But righteousness and justice, that's, his found, that's who he is. That's what describes his kingship. Acts 10.42, talking about Jesus, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Now, we might not always make the connection between judge or judging and justice, but obviously, if you think about it, they are related. And Jesus is often described as the judge. He is the judge of the living now and the dead in the future. God is, always has been. Jesus is, always has been, always will be a judge, a God of justice. That's an amazing, if, if you believe just kind of in, I was talking to someone a couple days ago saying that they just, they, they don't believe in God, but they believe in uh, universal kind of loving forces that are out there. Now that, that's not a God of justice. We have a God who says, I am a judge. I am a God of justice. That is who he is. And so the foundation begins by just saying God is just. He is just. He loves justice. He hates injustice. The way that he lives and presents himself is as a judge. Do you feel in your life or have you ever felt? Have you ever experienced or faith, felt the pain of being around injustice? God says, I am a God of justice. Any injustice that you've ever experienced, one day God will right every wrong. He is a God of justice. That's the first thing. Second thing is equality. Equality. And many people, when they think about justice, this is probably where they would start. Is that people are to be treated equally. People are to be treated with the same standards. Again, lots of verses I could show you. Here's a couple. Leviticus 24, 22, you are to have the same law for the resident alien and the native, because I am the Lord your God. Again, it roots it in who he is. So it's talking to the community of Israel and saying you're supposed to have the same law for the people that are here and anyone that comes in. There's not supposed to be a segregation or a separation. Same law. People are to be treated equally. Deuteronomy 16, 19, do not deny justice or show partiality to anyone. No partiality. People are to be treated with the same standard. Now, listen, this is part of why, from a utilitarian view of justice, you can't just have happiness or harm be the guide. A lot of times, different times in history, people have used those things to say it's not hurting anyone, so it's not unjust. In our country, the Jim Crow laws that created segregation, it's not hurting anybody. Well, in some sense, that's true. 
It's not hurting anybody to have separate schools. It's not hurting, physically speaking. It's not hurting anybody to have separate bathrooms. It's not hurting anybody. But that's not what justice is. Justice is equality. Justice is people are being treated the same. So that's why the utilitarian harm or happiness, what if we all decided, you know what the majority of people say will make us happy is eliminating the disabled. We couldn't say that that's justice just because the majority agree on that, even though that is what happens in the womb often. So we can't just use harm and hurt and happiness as a guide. It's equality. People are to be treated the same. Why? Well, the Bible, and we've actually, my kids asked me, are you going to use that verse again? Because we've actually talked about this all, all the, the last two sermons and this one, because so much of what we're called to as humans is rooted in the image of God. And I won't use the verse just to prove my kids wrong, <clears throat> but what Proverbs says is this, rich and poor have this in common, the Lord makes them all. We're all made in the image of God. doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or black or white or east or west. doesn't matter. Rich and poor have this in common. The Lord makes them all. The one who oppresses the poor person insults his maker. But one who is kind to the needy honors him. Saying even the way that we treat other people is a reflection of actually how we are treating God himself. Because he's the one that made them. Jesus says the same thing. I won't put it up there. But Jesus says, when you feed the hungry, you are feeding me. When you clothe the naked, you are clothing me. When you care for the sick, you are caring for me. That the way that we treat others is the way we are treating, for better or for worse, him. So equality is one of the biblical foundations of justice because so much of it is rooted in we are all made in the image of God. We're all made in the image of God. Can you look at someone of a different race from you and say they are beautifully made in the image of God? If we believed this, there would be no racism ever. Can you look at, look at someone of a different social class than you and say they are made in the image of God? I know their maker. We have the same maker. Can you look at someone and say we have the same maker? So, of course, we would treat each other with equality. Now, this is contra some of the tenets that we saw in postmodern justice because it undermines a lot of times the commonality and seeks to help us know what divides us, seeks to place us in certain groups, in certain sections, and base our identity based on that, not our commonality as humans, to say we're made in the image of God. That should be the basis of our justice towards one another, not what group are you a part of. Third, community care. Community care, or care for the community, or some people might call this compassion or generosity, but community care. Now first, when we talk about community care, we have to ask, well, what do we mean by care? What kind of care? What kind of care is being given? Because we could define care in a lot of different ways. What kind of care? And I told you those words righteousness and justice are often paired together. The word righteousness, Hebrew word sadaka is one form of it, often translated as righteousness, also as justice, as fairness, as vindication, deliverance, truth. 
Righteousness and justice often going together. But what this means is when those two are paired together so often, righteousness, justice, righteousness, justice, they're often side by side. When the Bible is talking about care for the community or talking about righteousness or justice, it means operating in a way that is designed on God's ordering of society and relationships and ethics. That's why here it it says just in the middle, accuracy or what is correct. It is the right ordering of relationships and society. The right ordering of relationships in society. So it's based on what God says, the right ordering of relationships in society. You'll never have justice if you're seeking to pursue justice with a definition of care or right ordering in what is correct if there isn't a basis of authoritative foundation. Accuracy in what is correct based on what? Care for the community based on what? What is right? What is wrong? If it's just because I think so or because the majority of people in the polls have said so or because we think this is where society is going or based on what? This is why the Bible links together righteousness and justice and they're even translated as each other at different times as it's based on what God says, based on what he says. Otherwise, you'll have all sorts of different definitions of rights there are some rights that we would say, yes, human rights, but then, and I, I'm sorry, I, I hate to mention things in, without giving you all the context of a different sermon, but people talk about reproductive rights to justify abortion. That's not really a right, because you're taking away someone else's human right. So anything can be smuggled into the word rights if we don't have an authoritative foundation for what is correct and right. Anyone can say, this is my right Based on what? The Bible gives us the right ordering of society based on God's design of things. Otherwise, certain rights conflict. Otherwise, certain rights are opposed to one another. We have a right to a racially pure society. Hopefully no one just clipped that and you know, posted that. <laughs> Is that a right? Some people believe so. Rights conflict. So only when you say, what does God say? What is God, how does God design things? How has God made things? There is no justice. There is no righteousness. If you haven't said, how has God designed things? That is, the, that is one of the foundations of justice in the Bible is there's two words. There's sadaka, which is this, that is sometimes translated as justice, often translated as righteousness. And then there's mispat, which is kind of corrective justice. And the two go together because one is saying, this is how God has designed things. Things aren't like that, so we need this to correct it and bring it back to this. But neither of those work if you don't have, what does God say? You just have competing views and computing competing beliefs of, well, I think it should be like this, and it's not like this, so I want it to be like this, but that's just conforming to your belief or your stream of justice's belief, not an authoritative standard that says, here is what the author of the universe has said. Which is why if you don't believe in God, it's hard to really have an objective source of any justice. Because you're saying there is right, there is wrongs that need to be righted, but says who? 
So care for the community is this principle, but I had to begin with saying, what kind of care are we talking about? What kind of care? And it's a care that is saying, here, how's how, here is how God has designed things, which, by the way, is a core part of biblical truth that is against many of the other theories, because many of those other theories would say there is no ultimate meta-narrative. No, that means big story. There is no ultimate big story, no ultimate meta-narrative that we all submit to. It, there, there, that's a way to oppress people when you say, this is truth, conform to this. And it can be if it's not based on what God says. There is a meta-narrative. There is a truth that we all are seeking to conform to. He defines what it is. Not certain groups, not history. He defines what it is. So community care, we have to say what kind of care, and then actually just push into, yes, God does tell us to care for the community. That's part of what justice is. The righteous person knows the rights of the poor, but the wicked one does not understand these concerns. He says we're supposed to care for the community. The righteous person he knows the rights of the poor. He knows it because he understands how God has designed things. He knows how people are to be treated. Deuteronomy, I love this kind of case study. Think about uh, many societies before the last couple hundred years were agrarian societies, farm-based societies. He's talking about when you reap the harvest, this is God speaking to his people, when you reap the harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf in the field, hate when that happens. Am I right? <clears throat> do, not, do not go, forgot my sheaf. Uh, do not go back to get it. It's to be left for the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you knock down the fruit from your olive tree, do not go over the branches again. What remains will be for the resident alien, the fatherless and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, do not glean what is left. What remains will be for the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this. So when you are, for us to think, for them, real quick, when, for them, they have a field, right? Think of it as a square. And there, it says, don't go to the edges of the field. Leave some of that. Don't double back and make sure you got every single thing. Leave it for those that need extra care, the fatherless, the widow, the immigrant. Leave it for them. God is commanding that they don't take everything that belongs to them. He is commanding that they leave margin for those that need help because God wants to care for them. So for us, you don't have a field probably, or a very small one maybe, but we are supposed to create margin in our financial resources to say this doesn't all belong to me. Doesn't all belong to me. Here's another way that James talks about this. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So you want a religion that God looks upon and says, yes, that's the pure religion I'm talking about. He says, it's about caring for the orphans and the widows and keeping oneself unstained from the world. So it's not, it's not only that, but I'm just not talking about that today. But we are to 
look after those that need care. Helping create a community of care where God's design is able to happen. Community of care. Now, here, here's what this means. This is not, think about kind of the spectrum of theories. This is not all of my money is mine. Nobody has any claim on it. Freedom. And it's not all my money belongs to the government. Let them distribute it the way that they want to. It is all of my money belongs to God. And he's given it to me. And he wants me to use it for what he cares about. That's different. We are a steward is a language that the Bible uses often. So it's not, my money's mine, no one can say anything. And it's not, everybody just give it to the government, let them decide where it goes. It is all of my money is God's. But God has certain priorities. God cares about the community. God has certain commands that he says, if you're saying that you belong to me, there's only one kind of religion that I say is pure and undefiled. Caring. Yes, I've given you a field. Yes, I've given you an abundant harvest. But I'm commanding you not to keep it all. If you know me and how I've designed society, then you'll know the rights of the poor. So God is saying we are to care for the community from God, for God. And I'm not just talking about tithing when I say for God, from God, for God, in the sense of for the things that God cares about and loves and the way that he has designed society. From God, for God. Which is why one, one of the premier commentators on the book of Proverbs, Bruce Watke, says this, the righteous, the Sadiq, are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. That's kind of the core. The righteous person says, I am willing to take a loss so that others may be blessed. The wicked person says, I am willing to take from others so that myself can experience blessing and advantage. That really is the core of the righteous person. Community of care. I love this, and really in a lot of ways I think this is the heart of what biblical justice is. God is seeking to create communities of care. Think about just God's heart and how he reveals this and commands this and calls people to this over and over and over. God wants communities of care. He wants communities where people are cared for. Communities where people are loved and are experiencing the way that he has designed things. That's what his heart is. That's the God that we have. He wants communities that get to enjoy, here's how I've designed life. That's part of what the church is to be a picture of. There's so much we can't control out in the world, but that's part of what the church is to be a reflection of. That we are a community of care, where people should see a picture of, here's how God's designed the world when they come in here. God is designing communities of care because that's what his heart is. And historically, by the way, you can read a lot on this, but that's why we have hospitals. That's why we have adoption and foster care. That's why we have so many different things. It comes from, it comes from Christians that influenced and built society. There's so many values that people actually have today that they don't even realize are traced to Christian values that weren't the values of ancient Rome and ancient Greece and ancient pagan cultures. They weren't the values of those cultures. There's a great book by a historian called 
uh, Dominion. It's by an author named Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, but uh, I don't think it's him. Maybe it is, uh, but <laughs> he's a historian on the side, but he writes a book all about how all of these values that we have in Christian society, I mean, excuse me, in society, are based on Christian values, even though we've forgotten that that's where they came from. So people talk about human rights or treatment of the poor or even things like humility. Those were not values before Christianity came. Now people don't know that. They just think these are liberal values, progressive values, just societal common values that we all agree on, but that's not true. So a community of care is what God's heart is. That's true for you. God cares for you. He wants you to experience care. Next, number four, responsibility. I would say perhaps the next thing I'm going to say might be something that some of you may have not have thought about or may go, mm, I'm not sure about that. So there you go. Um, we have a corporate responsibility, which means this. I can share, I can share responsibility for the sins of others. I can share responsibility for the sins of others. Now, here's what this means. Let me, let me give you a, a couple uh, Bible verses, even though there's more I could share, and then I'll explain a little bit. In Daniel, which I preached through last fall, Daniel is a righteous man. He's a prophet of God. From everything we know, I mean, obviously we're all sinners, but is a righteous person. And yet he prays this prayer in Daniel 9, saying, I pray to the Lord my God and confessed. We have sinned. He's doing a corporate confession of repentance. We have sinned, done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, turned away from your commands and ordinances. If you look at Daniel's life, none of that's true of him. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets. Daniel is a prophet. Who spoke in your name to our kings, leaders, ancestors, and all the people of the land. He's talking about generations of things that have happened. Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but this day public shame belongs to us, the men of Judah, the residents of Jerusalem, and all Israel, everybody, those who are near and those who are far, in all the countries where you have banished them because of the disloyalty that they have shown towards you. Lord, public shame belongs to us, our kings, our leaders, our ancestors, because we have sinned against you. This is a very public, we, corporate confession, legacy confession of sin. We, Daniel, puts himself in it. Or, in Acts 2.36, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He's speaking to a crowd of around 3,000 people, and he says, You crucified Jesus. You would go, What? I was sick in bed. I didn't do anything. Somebody else would say, what are you talking about? That was the Romans. They crucified Jesus. He's looking out at 3,000 people and says, you crucified Jesus. There is a public responsibility of sin and guilt that we can share. Now, if we think about this, we know that communities have the power to form people. So I'm not saying this is entirely true, but when somebody does a mass shooting, let's say, don't you wonder, what kind of home did they grow up in? I'm not saying that everybody bears all the guilt of everything, but we know that our families form us. 
We know that abusers perpetrate abusers, right? So we know that our families have a power to form us. And so some of that guilt at a family level, at a national level, it can be adequately said, we are guilty of this, God. We also know that sometimes we don't say something that we should say. I remember documentaries and various stories from the Holocaust in Germany, and your average German citizen, they weren't a Nazi, they, weren't, they, they didn't work for the Gestapo, but they would say, we saw the smoke, we smelled things, we didn't do anything. We know in Christian communities, we see people sin, we don't say anything. We see people do things that we know that's not good for their life, we're silent. We bear some guilt then in what happens in those people's lives. We also know we participate in things that are the result of oppression, that we benefit from, even if we're not the one perpetrating it. Buying shoes made by little kids in Asia. Things like that. Okay? We participate in things that perpetuate injustices, even if we're not the one saying, make my shoe, right? Like, you would never do that. You would never grab a little Taiwanese kid and say, make some shoes for me, right? I hope. Like, yeah, I would. Okay, I hope you wouldn't do that. But we are involved in, and things are all over the place that it can be hard to actually get around the injustices and greed and corporate corruption that's present everywhere just in the society that we live in. Even, let me just say this for maybe some of you that are more conservative and still disagreeing with me, you shop at Target that promotes values that you don't believe in. You watch Disney shows that per perpetuate values and as a company, things that you don't believe in. So we are often participating in things that are actually a part of societal injustice and oppression, even though we might not be the one that directly does it. So we bear some responsibility corporately, even for things that maybe we have not directly done. And of course, there is individual responsibility. The person who sins is the one who will die. A son won't suffer punishment for the father's iniquity, and a father won't suffer punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous person will be on him, and the wickedness of the wicked person will be on him. In some ways, that balances out what I just said, right? Both of those things are true. It is true the Bible weights more emphasis on our individual responsibility. That is true. But both are still true. There is a corporate responsibility. There is an individual responsibility. More things are weighted towards the individual. I hope it's true that a son doesn't do something and the father has to go to jail. I hope it's true that somebody doesn't say, well, sorry, this is just, this is what your ancestor did, so now you're going to get the death penalty. We never got him, but we got you. Like, we hope that that's not how things happen, right? And yet at the same time, there is corporate responsibility. The Bible weights it more towards an individual responsibility. Oftentimes, we think it's just one or the other. Oftentimes, we think it's just nurture, just the community, just the society, just the group. It's just nurture can't blame any individual for their actions. It's just, 
It's just the society that they were in. They were dealt a rough hand. Oftentimes we think it's either nurture or we think it's just nature. Everyone's choices, it's just totally on them. Everyone's just an independent, free-acting, moral agent. Both are not fully biblical. In fact, just to take one issue on poverty, the Bible says this in Proverbs, For the drunkard and the glutton will become poor, and grogginess will clothe them in rags. If you're drunk, if you're glutton, if you're lazy, you're going to be poor. That sounds very much like it's your choices, right? And then also, the uncultivated field of the poor yields abundant food, but without justice, it's swept away. Saying the poor person works hard and their field even has tons of produce, but because of injustice socially around them, they won't actually experience the benefits of it. Why are people poor? Why is there poverty? The Bible actually says it's too simplistic to say it's all their choices or to say it's just the society. It's not their fault. Both things can be true. So a biblical foundation of justice is responsibility. We have an individual and a corporate responsibility, which, by the way, means this. There aren't some groups that are evil. We are all sinners. We all have guilt. There's a common humanity that we have being made in the image of God, and there's a common wickedness that we have being affected by the fall. There isn't these groups are pure and only oppressed and have moral authority, and these groups are oppressors and are only bad with no moral authority. That's not biblically true. What's true is we are all sinners. What's true is we all share in various aspects of individual and corporate guilt and responsibility. That is what is true. Fifth, work, meaning work for justice. We are called to work for justice. Isaiah 1, 16 says, wash yourselves, cleanse yourselves, remove your evil deeds from my sight. Stop doing evil. Learn to do what is good. Pursue justice. Correct the oppressor. Defend the rights of the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Listen to all those words. Pursue it. Defend. Plead. Correct. Those are strong words saying, be involved. Do something. Don't just learn a bunch of stuff. I am God, and I am saying, go. Get involved. Jeremiah 22 says, this is what the Lord says. Administer justice and righteousness. Rescue the victim of robbery from his oppressor. Don't exploit or brutalize the resident alien. That means immigrant. The fatherless or the widow. Don't shed innocent blood in this place. Proverbs 31. Speak up for those who have no voice. For the justice of all who are dispossessed. Speak up. Judge righteously and defend the cause of the oppressed and needy. There's tons of stuff in the Bible saying you must speak up. You must speak up for those that don't have a voice, implying you do have a voice. Speak up, defend, pursue, act, work. Often in the Bible, it is this quartet of the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, the poor, 
that the Bible calls out. All of this means that the Bible assumes that we live in a world that will be unfair. We live in a world. Now, here is where it can be true that at times on this side of the the intersectionality table, at times the wealthier you are, the more status you have, the family background, various things, at times you have been secluded from some forms of oppression. And so sometimes it is true that the more marginalized you are, the more the more that you fall into an immigrant, a widow, an orphan, poverty, the more that you have experienced the weight of those things. The Bible says we live in an unfair society. That is what it assumes. Jesus says this. I don't have this. He says the poor will always be with you. That's kind of a discouraging comment. But what he's saying is the world's always going to be broken. We live because of the effects of sin that have affected our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. In our relationships societally, we live in a world that is broken. It's unfair. We should expect that there's injustice. We should expect. I'm not saying around every corner you have to question every motive, but we should expect that we live in an unjust world. We should expect that there will be systems and oppression and unevenness. We should expect that. That's not unbiblical. Sometimes Christians feel, they, they get so kind of upset about that idea, but it's like, have you lived? We should expect that that's what the world is. Sin isn't only here because sin moves from here into expansiveness from families businesses, to societies, to countries. We should expect that. If the Bible has so many calls to work against injustice and work for the rights of the oppressed, that is implying a worldview that says this exists. There are people that are oppressed. There is injustices happening. It's a worldview that assumes that reality. So if you feel that, if you look around and go, man, the world, yes, God agrees. And God sees these things, cares about them, which is why he calls us to work for them. God says himself that he will work for them. He says, don't rob a poor person because he is poor. Don't crush the oppressed at the city gate, for the Lord will champion their cause and will plunder those who plunder them. God says, I'm calling you to work for justice, and I am working for justice. I will champion their cause. God says, I feel it. I care about it. I will judge it now, and I will one day judge it later. It calls us to join him. Which means this, just very practically, we must be involved in the community care and setting things right the way that God intends them to be and working for justice. We mu- if you're a Christian, we must be involved. We must be. How? I think Proverbs gives good instruction says, the one who shuts his ears to the cry of the poor will himself also call out and not be answered. The one who gives to the poor will not be in need, but one who turns his eyes away will receive many curses. Just this, shutting your ears, turning your eyes away, think about the, the converse of that, to open your ears and look. You want to be a part of God's championing of justice in the world? You want to be a part of saying, okay, God, I, I, I do want to be a part of what you're doing and your heart and setting things right, okay? Proverbs says, 
Open your eyes. Open your ears. Listen. Be aware. That's often where it starts. We can get so caught in our own little world. It's hard to do this when we do this. This is a phone. When we, not just a weird hand that you're like, you know. It's hard to do that when we do this. It's hard to do that when we just have earbuds in the whole time. It's hard to do that. When every moment we fill up with distraction. Open your eyes. Open your ears. And happy is one who is considerate of the poor. The Lord will save him in a day of adversity. The righteous person knows the rights of the poor, but the wicked one does not understand these concerns. This is about our thinking. So yes, open yourself up to be affected and then think carefully. Think carefully. What can I do? What is the best way to help? What is the best way to get involved? What is the best thing that I can be a part of? Be considerate. Know and understand. Now, obviously, you can't do everything. You know how much injustice is in the world? A lot. You know how much injustice or brokenness or poverty or need or fatherlessness or widows or immigrants are in Colorado? A lot. You can't do all that. I can't do all that. So then what? Do nothing? Well, we need to be involved. And there's a lot of things that might guide how you go about choosing what to be involved in. You can't do everything, but you can do something. And I think it's helpful to think about your proximity. I'm not saying we shouldn't care about the needs of the world, but we should probably begin with caring about the needs that are closest to us. It would be a shame if you had a disabled child and you were investing thousands of dollars in a, for the disabled in Guatemala, but not your own child. So we should think about proximity, our neighborhoods, our city, our country, we should think about our gifting, what we have the actual ability to do, what we can actually be a part of. We should think about the resources that God has given to us, not what he's given to other people. We should think about all those things, but that's where it goes back to Proverbs of, okay, I'm opening myself and then I'm considering. You should think about your passions. Your passion may be what God has put into your heart. I remember years ago, one woman who uh, was so passionate about uh, an organization called Invisible Children, and this was in a community group. Many of the people in the community group, all young college people, so they were all fired up with various things and doing various causes and pursuing justice in various ways, but she was demanding that everybody be involved in Invisible Children and was so mad that people weren't. I had to help her see, it's not that people don't care about injustice, it's just they are involved in this thing and this thing and this. There's a lot of things out there that I'm glad that you care about that. But there's a lot of stuff that's out there. So we can look at our passion, we can look at our proximity, we can look at our gifting, we can look at the resources and experiences that God has given us. The, the thing is this, do something. You can't do everything, but do something. And seek to live a life that increasingly says, I care about what God cares about. 
God wants this to become not just charity or one-time kind of thing that we do, but a quality of our life that we are the righteous person that disadvantages themselves for the sake of the community. He wants it to become who we are. Is it? I think we probably all have room to grow in that. Say, God, I want to keep pushing closer and closer to your heart and your character. And then the final principle is this, worship. Worship. Proverbs says, doing what is righteous and just is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. And that doesn't mean sacrifice like giving up something you love, but sacrifice as in the worship, temple worship. So he's saying that this is really a part of our worship. It's a part of how we honor and worship God. It's a part of what we bring to God in our lives and say, God, I love you. I care about, I know how awesome you are. And so my life is doing this to honor you. See, you have to think about why would I be involved in justice? Why would I care? Oftentimes it's guilt. Oftentimes it's pressure from the media or, oh, everybody else posted that picture. I guess i never been to France, but I'll post, change my profile and say, I care about France or whatever. I, I mean, it, sometimes there's pressure. Sometimes it's guilt of, I just feel bad, so I need to do something. Sometimes it's wanting to be seen as, either internally or by others, as being on the right side. Sometimes it's just a pure, like, fight the injustice. Sometimes it's getting swept up in a moment with people, friends. Sometimes it's to signal our righteousness, what we call virtue signaling. Sometimes it's to say, look, I'm, I'm one of the good guys. I'm not one of them. I'm good. There can be various reasons that we get involved. This gives us something deeper. It says, before I ever do anything out there, before I ever work for justice, before I ever do anything out there, I'm realizing who he's been to me. I'm realizing who my God is. I'm realizing how he has been a good God to me, and I then live from that place. Look at how God says it in Deuteronomy. He says, for the Lord your God is the God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, mighty, awe-inspiring God, showing no partiality, taking no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, loves the resident alien, giving him food and clothing. You are also to love the resident alien since you were resident aliens in the land of Egypt. He's saying, here's who I am. Here's what I'm calling you to do. And remember, I did this for you. Remember, you were an immigrant in the land of Egypt. I rescued you. I cared for you. Remember how you were experiencing injustice, and I loved you, and I cared for you. Or look at what Jesus says when he announces his first sermon. He, he preaches from the book of Isaiah, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus' first sermon, he talks about, I'm here to proclaim and do justice. And this has physical and spiritual components. I mean, Jesus literally did help the poor and give sight to the blind, but it also has spiritual components. Jesus is kind of saying, this is my mission statement in some ways. And if you're a Christian... Jesus is saying, this is what I came to do. Thus, this is what's been done to you. We all, if you were a Christian, 
have been oppressed spiritually and been given freedom from Jesus, from our sin. If you're a Christian, we all were maybe not physically blind, but spiritually blind, and he came to us and healed us. We all were captives, and he gave us freedom. So Jesus is saying, I, I, this is, I've done this to you. And the more that we experience that, the more that we see that, the more that we then worship him and want to reflect that out to others. Have you seen God give you freedom in your life? Have you seen him give you riches where you were poor? And I'm not speaking physically. Have you seen him give you spiritual riches of his grace and his mercy and his love and his care? Have you seen him be a father to you? Have you seen him deliver you from spiritual oppression of guilt and shame and fear? Saying, see who he has been to you. Jesus says, this is who I am. And the more we see that, the more that we then go, okay, yeah, I worship that God. I I want to reflect that God then out to others. When we look at biblical justice, it is much more comprehensive than the other forms. It has a much more complex view of humanity and a better foundation that we are rooted in. So in closing, after such a long time, (laughs) that's because part of it's lecture and part of it's sermon, so the lecture part doesn't count. You get that. (laughs) We all want a world in a city that is more just, right? We all want that. We all want to live in that and experience that, and there's many problems. Often we're confused about our role and what to do and how to participate. The Bible gives us something better, something that's not a form of justice that actually oppresses us, something that is more deeply rooted. Jesus is the king that embodies all of this perfectly. We're going to take communion in a moment. If you're a Christian, uh, if you didn't grab one of those little cups on the way in, grab one of those, but communion is a time that Christians remember that we have the perfectly just king that embodies all of this, who came to this earth, God in the flesh, and treated everybody with such great equality, born in a manger, not in a palace, and came and treated everybody with such equality and cared for the community that he was in. The righteous disadvantaging themselves for the community. Jesus came and disadvantaged himself for our sake. In fact, Peter says that on the cross, it was the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's what we remember when we take communion. We remember his body was broken for me. His blood was shed for me. The the truly and only just and righteous person came to fully disadvantage themselves for our sake, the unjust and the unrighteous, that we may be brought to God, that we may be reconciled to God. That's what the Bible says, that we have a king that has, listen, I think it's interesting, we have a king that hates injustice and yet took the full weight of it on himself on the cross. Lived full weight of injustice on himself so that we didn't have to bear the weight of God's justice ourselves, but could instead experience his grace and mercy and be brought to him. 
So as you take communion, there's different things that you can pray. You, you can confess to God and say, here's ways that I have participated or not participated in justice and injustice. God, forgive me for not having your heart. And be reminded that he forgives you on the cross. And, and we can say, God, thank you that you are a just God. Thank you that you have shown me justice and mercy. And we can say, help me. Help me to be a part of your work in this world. Lead my steps. We can pray for our church to say, Lord, help us to be a community like this. Father, I thank you for your heart. You are a God of justice. I thank you that one day there will be no more injustice. There will be no more tears. There will be no more pain. There will be no more oppression. There will be no more fatherlessness. There will be no more widows. There will be no more debates. But you will rule and righteousness and justice will flow from your throne forever in perfect peace and harmony. I thank you for that, Lord. And we long for that day. And until that day, God, help us to say, your will be done here as it is in heaven. And may we be a part of that. Thank you that you are a just and merciful God. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.